Welcome to Give Methods a Chance, a podcast where we look at social science methods and practice. Today we are joined by co-authors David Scott Fitzgerald, an associate professor of sociology and co-director at the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies at the University of California at San Diego, and David Cook-Martin, an associate professor of sociology at Grinnell College and director of its Center for International Studies. In the podcast, we discuss the historical comparative approach that the two use in their book, Culling the Masses, The Democratic Origins of Racist Immigration Policy in the Americas, in which they conduct analysis of legal records of 22 countries between 1790 and 2010. Hi, David and David. Thank you for joining us today. Hi there. Perhaps we could start with each of you introducing yourself so listeners can recognize your voices when you're speaking. So this is uh, David Cook-Martin. I'm a professor of sociology uh, at Grinnell College, currently uh, working at the uh, Spanish National Research uh, Center for the year. And I'm David Fitzgerald, sociology professor at the University of California, San Diego. Great, thank you. So we're here to talk about comparative historical research. If you were to introduce this method to an undergraduate class who had never heard of it before, how would you go about describing it? I'd say that it's an approach to research that involves uh, comparing social configurations of different types, uh, you know, organizations, movements, institutions, over time and in different places. You know, it's, it's a very powerful method because mm-hmm. it both allows one to understand what's been the historical trajectory of a particular phenomenon, as well as how something that might seem natural in one given setting can actually vary quite a bit across mm. other cases. So it's, it's a way to make the strange familiar and the familiar strange. I was hoping we could use your recent research on immigration policies, racism, and democratic societies, which is the subject of, the, of your recently published book, as a way to understand how this method works. So what were the central research questions or, or maybe what was the central thematic when you, were, when you started the study? We, we all know that the, the U.S. is a nation of immigrants. And we, we also know that there are lots of other countries that are nations of immigrants or that have at least tried to be nations of, of immigrants. And countries throughout the Western Hemisphere have tried to use their immigration policies to construct their nations, to, to literally decide who would be the insiders and, and who would be the kinds of people that would not be allowed to enter and, and become part of, of these new nations. So in this project, we set out to figure out what have those policies been that have selected potential immigrants based on their ethnicity, their, their race, their national origin, other kinds of, of ethnic characteristics. And what is the relationship between those kinds of policies of ethnic selection and ideologies of government such as liberal democracy? So. In a nutshell, what we wanted to do was to explain a period of rising uh, selection of immigrants by ethnic criteria, as well as the decline of those uh, those criteria, such that in most settings, it's considered politically illegitimate to select immigrants based on their, their race. This is a rather large and potentially contentious topic. What was your specific methodological design for trying to answer these questions? You know, we wanted to capture trends over the long run uh, in immigration and nationality policies of the hemisphere, while also examining situated processes that that led to particular patterns 
Um, and so the, the quantitative coding that we used uh, allowed us to map the trends in formal uh, immigration and nationality law and raise questions about uh, the causes of these uh, trends. And, and then the qualitative analysis that led to the construction of case studies uh, gave us a way to examine how and why uh, we observed particular patterns and to get more of a fine-grained view of what was happening in key countries and international organizational fields. When you were designing the study, did you have particular methods in mind and then you were looking for a topic to employ them or was it the topic that really drove the methodological approach? The, the topic definitely drove the methodological approach and we experimented with some different methods when we did this. Uh, but you know, it, it became clear that because we wanted to write this really comprehensive, the, the first ever comprehensive study of the laws in all of these countries, that's 22 countries in the Western Hemisphere that have been independent since at least World War II, uh, over this very long time period, more than 200 years since these countries became independent. But to do that was going to involve comparative historical methods, but within comparative historical methods, there are lots of different ways that, that one can proceed. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we, we used both archival research to kind of bore down into the details of a set of case studies to try to understand you know, how these laws were enacted in practice, what were the social origins of these laws, how did the development of laws in one setting then affect the development of laws across countries and, and other settings. Um, so that, that involved, you know, kind of classical uh, historical archival methods. But then we also wanted to, to say something comprehensive at the level of the hemisphere. So that required a more of a, of a quantitative analysis. And to do that, we selected the laws of immigration and nationality in all of these countries. We were frankly naive about how long that would take. We thought that that would be pretty straightforward <laughs> to figure out what the laws on the books were. And then we would just write it all up and it would take maybe six months. And it, it took a, you know, maybe six years to finish that part of the project. This was extremely difficult to figure out what the laws were um, and then to systematically code them for evidence of discrimination, uh, for evidence of the use of different technologies of, of control. And originally we had planned to do a, a more uh, robust quantitative analysis, a time series analysis, but for various uh, methodological reasons, we decided not to, to pursue that further. And, and I think that that was the correct decision in this place. But we didn't know that starting out. Um, so yeah. Starting out, we thought that that would be a, a major part of our analysis, but it, it became impossible as, as we moved forward. Was it more the lack of data or just the difficulty in, in employing that type of method with the data? Or what was the reason you chose not to do that? The main problem was lack of, of data. So even knowing, for example, something basic about the economy in a country such as GDP or per capita GDP. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's almost impossible to get for most of these countries prior to World War II, and most of the policy action happened before World War II. So right. if you're interested in trying to figure out, well, you know, to what extent uh, the, the economic uh, distress, for example, um, drive restrictive immigration policies, you, you, <laughs> you can't even measure um, economic uh, conditions systematically. 
uh, yeah. during this time period. That, that, that's something that's only available for a handful of the most uh, developed countries like the U.S. and Canada and, and so forth. But if you want to know what was the GDP in uh, Honduras in you know, 1896, good luck. It doesn't exist. I, I think you have to uh, realize that, or we all have to realize as we study this kind of uh, question where we rely on often uh, officially generated data, that the existence of it is a function of the existence of a state with organizational capacity to create such data. And um, that wasn't consistently the case uh, across the hemisphere and for the periods that we were looking at. Before we go into more specifics about the methods, would you be willing to share just one or two of the core findings from the research? You know, I think that one of the uh, main findings uh, of the study it has to do with the relationship between democracy and uh, ideologies of difference, like racism, uh, and the fact that uh, that relationship is contingent. Although, for you know, much of the last 200 years, it was a positive relationship, meaning that you tended to find racist laws in um, uh, democratic uh, political contexts. We also find that, you know, given certain circumstances, that relationship can change, and, and uh, we think it did change, uh, at, especially after World War II, uh, in the interwar period and then after World War II. Th so that's one major finding. I think another one is that we show how power affects different mechanisms of diffusion or the way that uh, the, the adoption of uh, laws of a particular kind by one country increase the likelihood that they'll be adopted uh, by another country. Beyond the simple prediction that, you know, policies flow from stronger states to other states. Um, and so we identified leverage from below as a little-known mechanism of effective diffusion of policy from weaker to more powerful uh, states. And we specify the, the institutional and the geopolitical conditions under which this mechanism is most likely to operate. So, you know, a, a related uh, theoretical contribution is to specify how the differential power of states affects diffusion within and across cultural uh, communities via uh, a different mechanism of uh, emulation. So those, I think, are two major findings. David, you may want to add. A third thought is that we pay a lot of attention to the interaction between domestic policies that are that are developed out of the sort of nation-state container society, what are domestic interest groups doing to affect policy, how does the design of institutions, uh, the, how do the rules of the game themselves affect the development of policy, and how do all of that interacts with foreign policy considerations, mm -hmm. with the inputs of transnational actors, whether they be labor organizations, eugenicists uh, organizations or anti-racist organizations and then key individuals within those organizations and networks. So this, this kind of intermestic approach, as some people have, have called it, it's, it's not something that we invented, but we, we use that lens systematically throughout our case studies to talk about the development of policy. And that, that's quite different from the way that most of the, the literature and studies of international migration takes place. Most of it really is about processes that take place within the nation-state container society. So going back and forth, looking at those interactions 
on this scale, I think is, uh, again, it's, it's not something that's novel, but we, we've tried to carry that approach forward and show how it can be done on a, on a bigger scale than is typically attempted. That's really impressive, and it leads to my next question. So I'm thinking about this issue of scope, and I'm wondering not only how did you collect or access the data, but then also how did you determine what data to focus on or, or what countries to examine and what time periods to cover? Because it sounds really potentially overwhelming. Yeah, it, it, you know, it sometimes was overwhelming, to be honest. Um, <laughs> in, in terms of getting the, uh, the data, so the idea of law might seem straightforward enough, but something like immigration law appears in many different kinds of law. Sometimes the law says the law of immigration, that's titled the law of immigration. But sometimes immigration laws are in the Constitution, they might be in bilateral treaties, multilateral treaties, court cases, uh, especially in the, in the instance of the U.S. when it comes to nationality law and who is eligible to nationality law. Uh, court cases have been important in, in that instance, although they've been pretty irrelevant in the other cases that we looked at. But there are many, many different kinds of law. So that's one reason why it took us so long to, to access these data. The, the second issue was that some law is publicly available and then some, at least, systematic policies are not publicly available. In our archival research, we came across a lot of confidential circulars in some countries, such as Mexico, to a lesser extent in, in Argentina and Brazil. And these confidential circulars would do things like, say, uh, Jews will not be admitted or they will not be admitted in large numbers or discriminations against Arabs or Chinese or so forth. And this was not in the black letter of the law. And yet these were documents that were circulated through the relevant government agencies and acted as, as law. So we had to make decisions about whether or not to code those as, as legal discriminations or, or not. How did you even gain access or find those? So get, getting access to <laughs> the, the so-called uh, hidden transcripts, as James Scott would call them, what was difficult. That's something that came out of our archival work. We, we didn't set out even expecting to find the, the volume of such secret confidentials that we, that we came up with. Um, and it, it was, uh, I don't know, I think it was some of the more exciting archival research that we did was to uncover some documents that have never been reported before in either the English mm -hmm. or Spanish language literature. Uh, for example, there are some confidential restrictions on Chinese in Mexico. That, uh, that I found in the archives in Mexico City, where some of the documents were written partially in cipher. And then I found other dark documents that decoded that and showed that it referred specifically to Chinese. David found some, some similar documents um, that have never been written about before in the archives in, in Argentina. So, you know, we were, we were attentive to those things, but ju just getting a hold of the laws, even the black letter law, in all of these countries over more than 200 years was, was very difficult when it comes to governments of countries with less developed state infrastructures. So it's easy enough in the US, Canadian, so forth cases, but uh, in a lot of Central American cases, for example, getting that was really difficult. So it was a combination of uh, getting copies of uh, government publications that would give all the new laws and uh, these sort of gazetas, these, these daily government uh, newspapers, if you will. Um, a lot of that was by microfiche from the from, from different parts of, of the world, um, going to the archives. Of, often 
it, it was easier to find these documents in a place like the New York Public Library than in those countries themselves. We have an extensive network of colleagues in those different countries that we drew on for suggestions about where to, to find the law. Um, it, was, it was really a challenge because most of the social science scholarship on these issues is very loose with citations and will frequently just cite the name of an author and the year of a, of a book publication without even putting any page numbers. And we wanted to reach not just social scientists, but also a legal community that has much more rigorous standards of, of legal research. So we went to great pains to identify the specific laws and actually access the text of the specific laws, which again, in many cases, took us years. Uh, we, we found, and I think this is a general issue that a lot of other researchers might face if they're doing legal research, it was much, much easier to find when a law entered into effect than yes. when, it, when it ended, uh, when it was superseded by another law, especially in countries that often rule by executive decree. This became a huge problem. And, you know, we, we would find out that a law went into effect in 1930. And then, you know, <laughs> we, we know that it's not effect, in effect today. But finding out what happened between 1930 and today um, turned out to be extremely laborious. What would indicate that the law was no longer in effect or that was no longer uh, or that something had replaced it? So it requires getting a hold of the, the legal text themselves rather than relying on secondary sources. And in some of the legal texts, they will say this law supersedes a previous law. Right. And then you, you, you have to work backwards from that. When, when we started this project, very few of these kinds of documents were available on the Internet. Since we started, there's a huge volume of information yes. that's been scanned and is now publicly available to anyone with an internet connection that, that makes this kind of work much easier. But before that, it was it was more difficult and, again, required getting a hold of these um, copies of microfiche and so forth. Some of them are indexed. Some of them are not indexed very well. And uh, you can go blind reading you know, page after page of, of microfiche <laughs> <laughs> looking for a particular law. Right. Did, I, I want to add to what David said that, uh, as he suggested, we, we really did rely on the kindness of uh, our colleagues, uh, our a network of colleagues, but particularly historians um, of law who would know where to find some of these laws. But, uh, as, as David also suggested, they often didn't know or had an idea that they were no longer uh, in force at a particular time, but couldn't point to the specific uh, law. So we we had to do uh, sort of uh, work that was terrier-like in its tenacity, in that we wanted to see the actual end of a We wanted to see somewhere uh, something that pointed to the end of the law. So we had to piece together um, snippets of information that each of these experts gave us uh, and follow those clues uh, until hopefully they would lead us to um, that uh, piece of law that uh, said, oh, this is no longer in effect. Sometimes it was, it was a matter of, the, uh, for example, in the case of Brazil, it was a matter of laws sort of being left on the books without actual effects and us discovering that decree where maybe it was a decree that did away with hundreds of laws that were on the books 
but were no longer uh, in effect. But I think that you know the uh, the combination of the kindness of strangers with the uh, snippets of information that they uh, gave us uh, and pursuing that as far as we could is is the approach that we took. And and I think that what David just said is also an important broader lesson for students of law and society, which is that we all know that there is a gap between the law and the books and the law as it's actually practiced in, in action. But one would not want to assume that the practice is more restrictive than than the law on the books. I mean, frequently there's that sense, and when we've presented, people always assume that that's what's going on, that secretly the governments are being even harsher than the law um, in the books would suggest. And there's certainly many examples where that's true. But as David said, we found some really important examples of the law in the books being much, much harsher than, than the law. Mm -hmm. in so whether or not it's going in one way or the other is uh, an empirical question. You talked a bit before about some of the methodological approaches that you took with the data, but I'm wondering if you could give some more detail about that. So after, after you collected all these laws, which was this daunting process, what did you do with the data that you collected and what kind of techniques did you employ? So we made a an Excel database which showed uh, 19 different groups of people. We divided the world up into 19 groups of people, which was a combination of categories actually used in the law, as well as our own lumping of, for example, people from Northwestern Europe. We, we lumped into the same category. And, and then we coded for the, the presence of discrimination against those groups in every country year from the moment of independence until uh, 2010. And then we separately coded for positive preferences, such as favorable quota, or maybe help uh, with paying for the sea passage or free land or various other ways of showing positive preferences. And we did that for both immigration law and nationality law. So that was all in a giant Excel database where we religiously coded the sources, again, trying to find the, the original text of the law and, and being much more careful than than social scientists typically are in this area. So that, that was part of it. But then we also were working as a team, not just David and, and myself, but we had graduate students and undergraduate students working on this project. So, you know, we had, we used Dropbox when, once Dropbox became available, I think Dropbox was invented during the course of this, this process. <laughs> and uh, remember this started in uh, 2005. So a lot of things that we take for granted weren't, weren't there yet. And we were using Dropbox to organize all of the materials systematically so we could go into the folder on uh, you know, Brazil and find the text of the laws that we had scanned. We could find the secondary literature that we had put in there, and it was accessible to everyone working on the team. And you know, D David did a masterful job of building the, the infrastructure uh, to, to be able to, to share these, these pieces of information because... Even though David took the lead on Brazil, for example, and I took the lead on Mexico, and in his reading, he would come across relevant material, and I would come across relevant material mm -hmm. for these cases. So we wanted to be able to to share those and not let that kind of thing, you know, fall through the cracks. Uh, David also put together uh, kind of an online blog that was just accessible to those of us who were working on the project, where we kept a running account of decisions that we had to make about coding, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. Our um, colleague, now uh, just recently finished her PhD last week, actually, um, Angela Garcia, 
who wrote most of the potted histories of immigration laws in the appendix. Um, she developed, working with us, uh, an extensive code book so that scholars in the future who wanted to know how we made our decisions, or even ourselves, to refresh our memory um, about how we coded these various categories, could go back and see what we did and make sure that we were doing it consistently. David uh, was also very good about uh, making sure that we traded places and looked at each other's materials uh, in terms of both coding but also the case study materials so that there was a, a check on how we were, were each uh, interpreting and applying some of the codes that we were uh, using. And then very practically, you know, we're, right now we're doing this interview over Skype and we had regular Skype check-ins as well as using email. Um, but even more importantly for a, a collaborative project in which, you know, David is based in a different state than I'm based, we had pretty regular in-person meetings. Uh, once, maybe twice a year, we would meet sometimes on an ad hoc basis just to discuss the project. Sometimes it was because we were both going to be at a conference. And that is absolutely critical, that notwithstanding all of the amazing technologies that are available now in terms of video conferencing and sharing documents, there is no substitution for sitting down and having face-to-face -face meetings to hash out problems, to push each other on the difficult questions. Mm -hmm. This was one of the features of a collaboration that I think made the project better is that if I had an issue that I was stuck on, you know, my, my preference would be to kind of sweep that problem under the rug. Uh, but instead <laughs> of doing that, I would ask David to solve my problem. And then we would talk about it and have a great discussion. And that's, that's much easier over, over a beer than it is, uh, you know, over the computer. I, I would also say that these in-person meetings, David and I had known each other for some years before this. We went to grad school together. But having these in-person meetings was absolutely critical to strengthen the, the confidence that we had in each other. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. on, a, on a project of this scale, there are many, many moments where you have to take something that you've been working on, that you've been writing, you know, many, many pages, and you have to give up ownership over it and hand it over to the other person to improve. And, and, and to do that in an efficient way also requires having confidence that they're going to make good decisions and that when there are questions, they're going to you know, bring them up and then you'll figure out what you're going to do. Uh, without that level of confidence, th this book project would definitely still be <laughs> underway and it might take another 10 years to finish. An idea that's discussed often when students are first learning about research methodology are these ideas of generalizability and validity. How did these factor into your project? Well, I think we've, we've started to hint at, at some of this, right? So were we really measuring what we actually set out to measure, you know, the, these ideas of internal validity and uh, namely, were, were we really getting at ethnic uh, selection as an indicator of logics of distinction uh, and, uh, you know, are our findings uh, generalizable or transportable in some uh, way? Uh, you know, the questions of uh, external uh, validity. And I think that with respect to internal validity, validity we, we took great care to carefully uh, define our uh, explanations, you know, that which we, uh, the explanation and our explanandum, the, that which we wanted to explain. And, um, you know, although there's still debate for, uh, or room for debate uh, about how we define certain uh, terms. Uh, <clears throat> I think that we were very careful about doing that and 
and thinking about how that would play out uh, in terms of our coding, both of the uh, in the uh, quantitative materials and uh, in the uh, qualitative materials. Um, you know, we, we took great care uh, uh, with the coding process, as uh, David was suggesting earlier. Um, we switched who was doing the coding um, and then compared uh, what was uh, coming out of that. We, sh we shared, our, obviously we developed um, as a group um, our coding schemes as well. So um, that, that was, you know, as a start on uh, internal validity. And, and I think that with respect to external validity and, um, you know, we're, we're dealing with a limited number of country cases, but we think that the explanatory model that uh, we develop uh, travels when similar conditions apply. Um, for instance, you know, we, we mentioned earlier our finding about the leverage from below, that mechanism of leverage from below, um, and, and namely that, you know, under specific institutional and geopolitical uh, conditions, dif the diffusion of policy patterns can happen against the typical uh, grain of, uh, or direction of powerful to less powerful. Um, you know, we think that under similar conditions, we are likely to see uh, uh, this uh, uh, diffusion contrary to the typical direction that we see in other times and places in our, our study. Another often discussed idea is the positionality of the researcher. Was this a consideration for a research project of this type? A lot of discussions of positionality begin with ascriptive categories of ethnicity, uh, gender, sexuality, uh, class position, and so forth. And I think those are all important issues to consider. But there's also one's position in terms of uh, an academic formation and being part of particular networks of scholars mm -hmm. and, and institutions. And certainly in the and that that understanding of positionality, our, our our position at UCLA was absolutely influential in in shaping the way that we thought about this project. So we we had all studied immigration under scholars like Roger Waldinger. We had studied uh, nationalism under scholars like Andreas Wimmer and Rogers Brubaker, uh, Latin American sociology or the sociology of Latin America uh, under David Lopez and and others. And this project was bringing together all three of those things. And in many ways, everything that we had done up until that point as, as graduate students and then as postdocs and assistant professors built on this triad, uh, which, you know, that, that, that's something that was historically produced in our lives by being at a particular university at a particular time when there were resources both faculty and, and monetary resources, special funding for students of uh, Latin America through the Mellon program, for example. So mm -hmm. there's a very, very direct connection between that kind of formation and the, the scope of the project, bringing together the different literatures in the way that we did. I really appreciate that answer. That, that really draws out some aspects of positionality that are, are generally ignored march through, through the more common discussions. It, you know, I was going to, uh, I, I agree with everything that uh, uh, David has said, and I, I was going to add that uh, part of our being where we were was our exposure to the thinking of scholars uh, elsewhere uh, who would give us tools to uh, understand some of the questions that we were interested in. And one of those 
um, very influential scholars, I think, in our work is, has been uh, Aristide uh, uh, Solberg. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, his, his uh, work on an international system of states uh, really pushed us to think about uh, the extent to which our analytical uh, tools and positions were affected by our our own positions in, in uh, and and uh, allegiances within uh, an international system of states uh, with institutions that tend to th see things in terms of either a particular uh, national. Uh, location or a regional location, and and we certainly wanted to uh, break loose from a position that would have uh, located us uh, just from, let's say, from a U.S. perspective. We want really wanted to uh, take a an analytically uh, transnational uh, view of uh, immigration and nationality law. Who was your intended audience for this project, and how did that shape the research? And I'm really curious about this question because a lot of the conclusions you you draw run counter to the popular stories of democracy or, or celebrations of the United States. Well, when we wrote our book proposals, of course, we promised the <laughs> editors that every literate reader on the planet would really enjoy yeah. reading. That's, that's always the goal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in all seriousness, uh, we think that it does have cross-disciplinary appeal, um, and we think that in part because there are several different disciplinary organizations that have organized author meets critic sessions around this book. So there was one at the Social Science History Association. There's one coming up next week in uh, Seattle for the Lawn Social, uh, the Lawn Society Association, American Sociological Association coming up in Chicago, the um, American Historical Association meeting in Atlanta in January 2016. So, you know, this suggests that sociologists, migration scholars, um, legal scholars, historians, political scientists, you know, have, have an interest in, in various aspects of our project. So, so we have tried to engage them primarily. It is an academic book with a primarily academic audience, but David and I have both worked to bring some of these findings into a broader sphere. So we've done uh, radio interviews on uh, NPR affiliates, for example, uh, uh, some of the online um, sources. Um, it was mentioned in the, in the New York Times in a series. So we've, we've done what we can to, to bring at least uh, a summary of these findings to, to broader audiences. Did those more popular connections come from you reaching out, or did they stumble upon your work in some other way? You know, a combination. Some of these were the result of relationships with journalists that we've built up over the years. Um, I think that's probably the most common pattern in my case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, another uh, audience that I would add, I think for both of us, uh, have been our students. Um, you know, if you think of that uh, elusive... Uh, a uh, smart lay reader that uh, editors talk about. Uh, you know, our undergraduate audience, uh, our public is uh, certainly representative of, of that. And we, in my case, uh, and I think David may have done something like this as well, I had undergraduates actually read drafts of um, uh, the manuscript um, while it was in preparation and contribute comments. Um, and so, 
we we really were trying, even though the length of the book may may suggest we uh, we weren't completely successful at this, but uh, we were really trying to be um, uh, as concise and, and as straightforward uh, as possible. Uh, you know, there are passages in the book where we do speak more explicitly to scholars, but there are also passages that we hope will be available to a much broader uh, audience. And uh, I think we both welcome um, that kind of uh, uh, public engagement as well. That You know, the Scholar Strategy Network um, is something that we've participated in as well and uh, has brought us into uh, contact with uh, that broader audience. That's, that's a good point that David mentions about the Scholar Strategy Network because we've, we've also written a number of different briefs of say uh, two to three pages around various issues discussed in the book and disseminated those online through the Scholar Strategy Network, through the um, Migration Policy Institute, and, and those I think more easily are digested by uh, a lay interested readership. It has been pleasant to see that uh, audiences not only in the United States but elsewhere have been very interested in, uh, in this book. Uh, David and I have uh, uh, presented uh, to audiences in uh, Latin America uh, as well as Europe, um, and there's been quite a bit of interest. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting in Europe right now and, and uh, have uh, done several uh, talks to a range of uh, interested um, uh, audiences, mostly scholars, but uh, you know the the environment is such that the lay public um, is very engaged in uh, intellectual debates um, in Spain, France, Germany, and, and other countries, uh, the Netherlands. As a way of concluding, I was hoping we could do a few reflection type questions. So maybe starting out first talking about the limitations and then talking about the selling points of this methodological approach. Um, so, so what were some of the limitations to this approach reflecting back? Well, you know, I think that when you go uh, broad in the way that we did with the uh, collection of laws that we uh, coded for the presence of some sort of uh, selectivity, um, you can miss some important uh, dynamics and the fine-grained aspects of what may be going on uh, in the case of each country. We also miss, uh, you, you miss the stories from below, so to speak, how people uh, engaged some of these uh, uh, laws. So I think that's something that I would mention as a starting point for uh, limitations of this kind of uh, project. What are the main advantages or selling points? So thinking back to that undergraduate class who we, we first talked about, had never heard of this approach before. If you're standing in front of them and saying, you know, these are the, these are why these are the selling points. This is why you should consider this type of research. What would you tell them? Well, not, notwithstanding the limitations, it is possible, given our strategy of trying to paint the the big picture using this more quantitative level of analysis as well as these qualitative case studies, to see both the law on the books and the law in action. And yes, it's true that a, a book that focused exclusively on the law in action would have uh, you know, even more nuance about daily practice and mm -hmm. so forth. Showing, showing these big trends is really important. Mm -hmm. It's really important in part because it makes us get away from the methodological nationalism, sort of naturally framing the project through the lens of whatever nation state we happen to live in. So getting beyond the, the blinders of 
just looking at the United States, for example, thinking about how U.S. policy developed an interaction with different countries. Um, and th that's something that can be repeated, you know, with, with many different units of analysis. So maybe someone is interested not in countries as unit of analysis, but they're interested in organizations mm -hmm. and systematically looking at what a set of organizations have done as well as doing some strategic case studies to, to elucidate the dynamics, I think is a, it's a powerful combination. It requires yeah. a lot of space. This is not a strategy that's easily amenable to a journal article. This is uh, really a book link strategy. Uh, but if you can uh, convince your editor to, to get the space, I think it gives the most complete understanding of a process that, that's possible. Well, I think that's a great way to wrap it up. So thank you for joining us again. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you, Kyle. Thanks, Kyle. Enjoyed it. On behalf of me, Sarah Loggison, and my co-producer, Kyle Green, thank you so much for listening. And remember, please give Methods a chance. Mm -hmm.